Hey, Crossings Podcast community. This teaching is called Think Again About the Common Good and is the fifth teaching in our Think Again series. It was taught by Mark Nelson on May 16th, 2021. Thanks for listening. Hey, Crossings. Thanks for joining us. Um, We're grateful for the time to be together, even in this way, uh, to kind of enter into now a discussion into um, a story uh, of of scripture, a story of, of our lives intersecting with the scripture. In all honesty, when I think about today and I think about the teaching today, I, my expected outcome is this. I believe I will make every one of you mad at me <laughs> uh, because today, uh, as I speak, I will go too far for some of you and I will not go far enough for others. So I think you all end up being mad at me. Uh, and here is why. Caleb Gilmore on our staff, uh, who came on our staff as the teaching pastor in March, which is all part of my transitioning over the next year or so. Caleb was on staff a few years ago, and uh, when he would teach, uh, I would give him (laughs) these very unfair, huge sections of Scripture, uh, more than ever should be taught at one time. Uh, One time I said I had Caleb teach Acts 21 through 28, chapters, not verses, Acts 21 through 28. Uh, another example, sometime in 2020, uh, back when he came back in our community, wasn't back on staff yet, I asked him to teach from Leviticus, which is bad enough, but I also gave him six chapters. Again, bad, but I, the six chapters were on the purity laws of the Old Testament. <laughs> Caleb always seemed to get stuck with those things. Well, now that he's in the role he is, uh, payback, as they say, is, well, it, it can be a bit harsh. And so Caleb designed this series, uh, Think Again, here is the title slide. And as Caleb designed this theory, um, and over the first few weeks of Think Again, we've talked about thinking again about who we are, about success, about changing someone's mind. Last week, Caleb talked about thinking again about the other. So I assume then (laughs) that what is happening today is some form of payback. And it's also the reason that I think I'll make you all mad at me today. Caleb gave me the idea, the big idea for the teaching to be thinking again about politics. (laughs) And after a very loud groan from me, I said, okay, okay, I can do this, but it depends on, on how you define the word politics. Because like so many things in life, each of us define something differently but we assume we are each defining it in the same way, which is absolutely a huge contributor to the brokenness of the world as a whole. I'm going to attempt to define the word politics as I believe followers of Jesus should define it. And thus, this is why I will make everyone angry today. (laughs) It'll be too much for some of you, and it'll not be enough for others. So to that definition, here on the screen you see The word we use for politics has its roots in Latin and in Greek, actually. Polis simply means the natural ordering and structuring of tribes of of a group of people, specifically in Greece. And politikos means, quote, of, for, or relating to people of a city. So when you see those two definitions, politics then seems to be defined as the ordering and structuring of the people hopefully for better and not for worse. So politics is about the way societies organize themselves in order to live and serve each other well. So to take this train of thought, 
if we get to the basics of this word, when we are talking about politics, we are talking about the citizens, we are talking about the people, we are talking about how people live together, how they relate to each other. When we talk about politics, if we go to what the word was intended to represent, and I believe, I believe this is my definition of it, I believe we are talking about, as you see on the screen, how we organize our shared life together for the common good. How we organize our shared life together for the common good. There is a shared good between us that we all desire. So politics is how we organize ourselves for that common good. So today, let's think again about politics. Actually, let's title it this. So let's think again about the common good. If we define politics that way, then we as a faith community, I think we're very political then. But also for 14 years, Crossings, we've been around for 14, 14 and a half now, I guess. Crossings has, has stated over and over, I can remember from the very beginning stating this from the stage, that we are a community that is aggressively nonpartisan. But you need to remember that nonpartisan is not apolitical. It's not against politics. It's not nonpolitical. It's nonpartisan. So to, to explain that better, I want to read you a letter, and it's actually decently long. It's, it's from a guy named Rob Yackley. I don't know him, um, but uh, Mike Frost posted this last week. He's in San Diego. I did a little research on him. He runs a nonprofit there called Threshold. And his nonprofit focuses on mentoring and coaching people towards spiritual formation. He wrote a letter to a friend who had supported him, financially supported him for 30 years. But because of politics, not my definition of it, but because of his definition of, of politics, had decided to no longer financially support uh, Rob and his ministry. So here's the part of the letter and see if it resonates with you as much as it resonated with me. And there's no names in this and no details. You can't figure it out. He wrote, first, I want to thank you for your thoughtful letter and the courage and the personal integrity it took to express your convictions in such a straightforward and kind way. And second, I want to thank you for all the ways you have supported our family and ministry over the past 30 plus years. In the past few years, I found myself oddly and sometimes awkwardly occupying a space where it seems like half of my family and friends are on the right of me and half to the left. I would be dishonest if I said it's been easy trying to be true to my faith and my convictions while simultaneously being loyal to my friends and family through all this chaos and conflict. But Rob says, I have tried. Rob goes on to give a definition of politics, very similar to the definition I, I've given, how to organize ourselves for the common good. He gives that definition and then he writes, when Jesus began his ministry, he announced the inauguration of a whole new polis, a whole new way of being and living, a new organizing principle that he called the kingdom of God. And make no mistake, that proclamation was both dangerous and treasonous. The kingdom that Jesus inaugurated would be nothing like the polis of Caesar or his Jewish vassal kings or of the Pharisees who cozied up with the kings in order to gain protection and favor. This new kingdom would be a kingdom of love rather than power, sacrifice over safety, peace, not war, simplicity over prosperity, and humility rather than self-promotion. This new kingdom, he says, is the good news. The long-awaited Messiah had finally come to liberate and establish a new kingdom. This new polis 
This new kingdom of love is the gospel. They are inextricably linked together. So, Rob writes, while I can't be apolitical, like against politics, I can certainly be nonpartisan, and I believe I should be, he says. Toward that goal, I have always tried my best to follow the ways of Jesus, regardless of who is in power or who is championing the policies that best embody the virtues of Christ. I am neither Republican nor Democrat. I consider myself to be a citizen of the kingdom of God first and only secondarily a citizen of the United States of America. And I hope that I will always keep my allegiances in that order, which inevitably, inevitably means that I will probably always feel some resonance and some dissonance with the political parties of this world. And then he writes, I don't know about you again, but I so resonated with this. It was like, oh my gosh, he's in my head. He writes, I hope you know that I'm not trying to just find a comfortable middle ground in a feeble attempt to remain neutral. I don't actually think followers of Jesus should be neutral. We are called to be pro-kingdom and pro-people. So I try hard to affirm what I believe is consistent with God's kingdom. And I try to stand against what I believe is in opposition to God's kingdom, regardless of which party is proposing it. I have no partisan agenda, nor do I attempt to promote one party over another. I simply try my best to be a faithful citizen of the kingdom of God. He said, I apologize for the length of this reply. It is long. But I feel like it's important to add just a couple closing thoughts so that you hear my heart as well as my thoughts. I want you to know that I'm not trying to be cocky or cavalier when I express my convictions. I try to share them thoughtfully, sensitively, and respectfully. I don't always strike a perfect balance, but I do try. On top of all the pain and loss we've all suffered due to the pandemic, this past year has been painful and costly for us in more ways than you can imagine. Good Christian friends have called me all kinds of vile things, ended their support of our work, and unfriended me after decades of friendship. Those are deep and painful wounds. But for every one of a, every one of those who have written us off, at least two or three people have written to tell me that they would have given up on God in the church a long time ago if not for what I had written or said. And as hard as it may be, or as hard as it has been to be dismissed my, by my evangelical friends, Seeing people come to faith and hold on to their faith has made it worth it. Again, I think that describes where we are as a community. It describes where I am as an individual. There's no doubt about that. Followers of Jesus trying to be faithful people of the kingdom of God. That is to be our identity. If we profess some belief in Jesus, that is to be our identity. Now, I do think there are some practical ways to move forward in this thinking again. For example, I don't know if you know this or not, but Rachel earlier in the gathering here on video, she actually read a very political passage. <laughs> it was from Luke 10, the Good Samaritan. Let me review what she taught. Verse 25, just then a scholar of the Hebrew trip scriptures tried to trap Jesus. So this Hebrew scholar, probably the top of his class, my imagination says him and his expert friends have gathered around and they see this Jesus and they want to trap him, as the scripture says. And, and the smartest one in the bunch, his friends are like, go ahead, go ahead, do it, do it. You can do it. Go ahead, ask him. So the scholar says, teacher, what must I do to inherit and experience eternal life? And the scholars say that the way this is written, the way it's translated, there's definitely some hostility in that question. Well, Jesus answers the question with a question, of course. <laughs> what is written in the Hebrew Scriptures? 
How do you interpret the answer to this question? What do you say? His friends are like, you know this, you know this, come on, don't, don't let him get you. And the scholar says, um, you shall love, you shall love the eternal one, your God, with everything you have, all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind. He's quoting Deuteronomy 6. And love your neighbors yourself. That's Leviticus 19. And his friends are like, yeah, way to go. You showed him fist bumps here, fist bumps there, you know, all that. I always, I always imagine this scene like in Karate Kid when they uh, sweep Daniel's leg and, and the, the, the guys over there inside going, get him a body bag. I see that kind of attitude here. Like, yeah, you showed him. Get him. Yeah. And Jesus answered the scholar by saying, oh, perfect. Your answer is correct. Follow these commands and you will live. His friends, you know, chest bumps, fist bumps, whatever. Now, Jesus might have been content to leave it there. We don't know for sure. But the expert in the law, the scholar, he wants to push it farther. He wants to come out on top in this public confrontation with Jesus. Verse 29, the scholar was frustrated by this response because he was hoping to make himself appear smarter than Jesus. One translation says he wanted to justify himself. So the scholar says, ah, but uh, who is my neighbor then? Now notice the scholar's motivation. He wanted to justify himself. Jesus, of course, answers this man's question, but he doesn't answer it the way that they thought he was going to answer it. Jesus says, hmm, once upon a time, and then he jumps into this story, how this fellow was traveling down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Some robbers mugged him. They took off his clothes. They beat him to a pulp. They left him naked, bleeding, in critical condition. By the way, the road to Jericho was an incredibly rugged stretch of road. Uh, it was known between these two cities from Jerusalem to Jericho was known to be winding kind of road, very treacherous. Uh, it, it was a, a road of death. Verse 31, by chance a priest was going down the same road. When he saw the wounded man, he crossed over to the other side and passed by. Then a Levite, too, was on his way to assist in the temple. And he came, saw the victim lying there. He, too, kept his distance. There is this uh, famous uh, teaching by Dr. Uh, Martin Luther King, Jr., that is called, I've Been to the Mountaintop. And uh, it's a wonderful, the whole sermon is, is tremendous. I want to play you 20 seconds that describes where we are in this story right now. And so the first question that the priest asked, the first question that the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But then the Good Samaritan came by and he reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? So we know that the Good Samaritan came by and asked that question. If I don't help this man, what's going to happen? And he helps him. Now, we listened to Rachel tell the story. We knew that was coming. We knew the Good Samaritan was coming in the story. But when Jesus told this story to these Hebrew scholars, nobody saw that part coming. And the fact that Jesus makes it a Samaritan is intentionally provocative. We've talked many times about the history of the ethnic and religious hatred between Israelites and Samaria. It's, it's severe. And the last thing Jesus' listeners were expecting to happen in the story happened. The Samaritan stopped the bleeding, came to him, stopped the bleeding, applied first aid, put him on his own donkey, took him to the local La Quinta, and had him cared for. And then Jesus asked, verse 36, 
So, after telling this story, which of the three proved himself a neighbor to the man who had been mugged by the robbers? The scholar said, well, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said, all right, then go and behave like that Samaritan. Or go and do likewise, one translation says. Now, I think that passage for us today gives us some lessons towards the common good. I think they're obvious in some ways. Uh, there's a lot of different things you can probably pull from this. There's two dominant things for me. One is sometimes we need to get off our donkey and into the ditch. Now, I'd much prefer to use the King James Version because their translation for the word donkey is much better, but there might be some children around the room, so let's not use that. But you understand what I mean, right? We need to get off. We, we, we just need to get into the ditch. When people are hurting, we need to help. Our response should not be, well, you know, the traveler, I think he made a poor choice by going down the road in the first place. So it's kind of his own fault. It's that uh, tendency we have to blame the victim. Our instinct should be, first and foremost, all of us are created in the image of God. So let's help him. So I think that's, that's an easy response, right, to the story. The second easy lesson, I think, from the story about the common good, for me, has always been this. Could something have been done about that treacherous Jericho road? Does that make sense? If this road was so horrible and treacherous, why didn't somebody do something? It's one thing to take care of someone when they've been robbed, beaten, left for dead. Yeah, that, one, that one's a little easier. But there's also something to be said about making the road that they're walking a safer place to walk. So Dr. King, in a different sermon, in 1967 said this. It's on the screen for you. A true revolution of values will soon cause us to question the fairness and justice of many of our past and present policies. On one hand, we are called to play the Good Samaritan on life's roadside, but that will only be an initial act. One day, we must come to see that the whole Jericho Road must be transformed so that men and women will not be constantly beaten and robbed as they make their journey on life's highway. True compassion is more than flinging a coin to a beggar. It comes to see that a system which produces beggars needs restructuring. Now that is very political, especially when you define politics as how we organize our shared life together for the common good. So speaking of transforming the Jericho Road, I had a conversation with Daniel Watson on Zoom that I want to share with you now. Okay, everybody, this is Daniel Watson, and you may know him if you've been around our community. He's been a part of Crossing since the beginning. He is, uh, along with his wife, Mandy, the founder, executive director, all those head honcho titles of the Restoration House for 14 years. But recently, Daniel, you've kind of taken on a, a new role in the city uh, in addition mm -hmm. to TRH. Yep. Why don't you unpack that for us just a little bit? Yeah, so for those who don't know, I am now an elected official on the Knox County Board of Education. So certainly something I never woke up in the middle of the night thinking I was going to do. Uh, but actually what led me to it was uh, taking a sabbatical in 2019. Um, Mandy and I and the kids left town for two months. And the thing that God kept speaking into us while we were away is 
Um, although we've been doing family development work for 14 years and impacting the life of individual families, it was that God was saying, hey, it's time to move upstream and it's time to affect some of the systems that affect families. And I couldn't think of a system that affected more families than education. So I ran and put my name in the hat. Didn't know a single school board member when I ran. Um, it wasn't about beating anybody. Um, it was about just um, putting myself into a position to affect some change that I couldn't affect otherwise. So, so in this, um, you know, we're defining politics as the pursuit of common good. So in that, yeah. in that definition of this, you're in a very public position now in the pursuit of the common good. Sure. What have what are you learning? What is this, uh, what is this place uh, trying to transform the Jericho Road of going upstream and figuring out who's pu pushing people in the water in the first place? What, what are you learning in this, this whole role that you have? Yeah, I'm learning a ton. One of the biggest things that I'm, I'm learning, though, is that the systems that don't work for people um, have been created over long histories, and so it, it's very difficult to point to, well, this is the one lever we need to pull, or this is the one person that needs to act. Um, the only way that the system begins to really move is when you have enough people with enough momentum pushing in the same direction. But that can't even begin until I think people take time to understand the system and the history that created it. Um, one of the things I've seen even early on in my role as a board of education member is Often what we're doing, um, even when we have good intent in education, is we're really putting um, band-aids on the results of systems. So we're saying, hey, this system isn't working. We're seeing all the things that it's causing. Let's go fix all the things it's causing. Mm -hmm. But we're never actually stopping to say, oh, but we also have to address the system that's causing it. Um, and, and that's something that we need to be really thoughtful about. Uh, and that's hard work, and it's a different type of work. Um, it's a different type of work than I think really most elected officials are used to, or maybe even there for. So the, the image that I've been using a lot, at least has come to my mind is one that Jim Collins uses when he talks about a flywheel that to get this big wheel going, it's such a slow roll to begin with, but mm -hmm. once you get that thing rolling, it picks up momentum. Is that what it feels like? I assume right now it feels like you're, barely moving this thing or, or it's pulling you backwards. Yeah. You know, I'm still pretty early on in my tenure. So, you know, I've, I've taken a lot of time and will continue to understand who the people are, who the players are, what the levers are, what the nuanced conversations are. Um, you know, one of the things we always hear in education is we need to throw more money at it. That's actually not true. That's not even what the data says, uh, but that's the easy thing to say. Um, and so we got to be willing to peel back the layers a little bit and, and understand what's really going on and why it's going on. Um, yeah, so I'm still very much in that phase and am starting to be more direct and vocal about some of the things that I think we need to be considering um, and, and immediately are seeing some resistance to that. Um, and I don't think it's for lack of heart or intent on the people that are expressing resistance. Um, I think part of it is they fundamentally don't know they're, we're not having the same conversation. I, th I think that's at the heart of it. What, what's the biggest, uh, what's the biggest gap in that, in those conversations? Do you think? Well, I'll, I'll give you a very clear example. So in education, one of the things you hear talked about a lot right now is the idea of equity. 
but many, many people use equity to talk about equality. Well, those things are two fundamentally different things. And when you, you confuse those terms in a conversation around education, you actually do harm. Uh, and so right now in Knox County Schools, we have, um, we've defined an equity focus uh, in our strategic plan. But when you hear different stakeholders try to elevate that message, they're really talking about equality. And so that, that's part of it is having clear definitions about what you mean when you say certain things. And, um, and some of these issues around equity and around oppression and around system are things that aren't easily talked about for the first time in public. So when you have leaders who are being asked to engage in these conversations, but have not yet wrestled with them personally, deeply, you know, and they're only hearing them in the public sphere, there's this automatic resistance. Um, and there's this bristling effect that happens uh, because that's not the space people want to have that conversation first. But in the state of Tennessee, because of our sunshine laws, like I can't sit down with a, another school board member one-on-one and say, hey, let me tell you some about what I understand about systems um, and what I've learned through people who have been oppressed. I, I can't do that. Um, and so it's very hard to move that body of people together from within. You have to have the right external voices at the same time trying to help move individuals in that body. So that, that's a real challenge that we have in the way we do politics in Tennessee. So um, when, when we think practically then, first of all, I mean, all our parents, all our educators are very, very grateful for your role in this and your attempt at this transformation of the Jericho Road. My, my question would be, practically speaking, I assume the best thing that we can do is not all show up to speak at school board meetings. I'm going to assume that's a bad thing for us to do sometimes. Um, yeah, it, it, it's, it's not always a bad thing, but it, it's not always needed. To me, it's having those one-on-one -on -one private conversations with leaders. Mm -hmm. um, and, it's, and it's not necessarily an email. It needs to be a dialogue. And I'll tell you, I think a lot of public leaders aren't don't want to have the one-on-one -on -one dialogues. And so I would keep pushing for that because that's, that's where people can be authentic. They can really share their struggles and their challenges with an issue. Um, but the one-way communication, I don't think affects a lot of change systematically. Well, that goes back to something Caleb mentioned last week that we've quoted all the time from Brene Brown. It's hard to hate someone up close yeah. it's hard to have that divide. And it's hard to have that gap. When we, when we get up close and we have those relationships. But we have set that up with elected officials in Tennessee, the way we do open meeting laws and sunshine laws, you know, for, for me not to be able to sit down one-on-one -on -one with our board chairman without it being a public meeting, it's completely asinine. It, it, um, that part of the system works against good work. It works against the goodwill or the, um, yeah, the, the, the overall good of the community. So well, what I'm hearing then is, is we need to learn the history of some of these things. We got to know what we're talking about. We yeah. got to peel back the layers and understand what has gone on. Be willing to have the nuanced conversation. So, yeah. and yeah. simply have the conversations. Yeah. Yeah. Face-to-face so -face stuff. So again, Daniel, we're grateful. I know this is really short, but um, we, we are behind you. We're thankful and grateful for you doing this and, and we're cheering you on. I mean, we, thanks. If we understand that, that, politics are pursuing the common good in the name of of the people we follow and if we follow jesus 
then we need to be pursuing the common good in all of these areas. And for your work in education, we're very grateful. Thanks. It's absolutely kingdom work. So yeah, yeah. Absolutely. absolutely. All right. Thank you, brother. Thanks. Appreciate you. So I know that at the beginning, I said that uh, I was probably going to make you all angry and, and probably have in some way. I don't know. But I actually think it's my anger that has motivated this talk. I listened to a podcast the other day uh, on from 538, I think is the name of it. And here's a quote from them. They were talking about people of faith and they were talking about politics and how politics is thought of in the world. And they said, people are now sorting their religion based upon their politics. So they are actually picking a church that matches their political persuasion more so than they're picking a church based upon the theological positions of that church and what they think about Jesus. That's something they said that we've never seen before. It's almost as if politics has become the first cause and everything else is downstream of that in our lives now. Okay, that makes me angry. <laughs> I am so angry that discussing things like we have discussed today is enough to make people decide to leave a community or decide to come to a community. That, that what someone teaches and thinks and believes about politics is more important to them than what people are thinking. People that come to a place like this, to an ecclesial gathering, than what they think about Jesus. I am angry that we have somehow determined that unless we all agree on something, we cannot be in community. And when you think about how ridiculous that statement is, considering the state of the world, that, that unless we agree, we can't be together. Lee Camp uh, is an author. He says that type of hostile and belligerent per partisanship among American Christians might be compared to a fistfight over table manners on the sinking Titanic. It just doesn't make any sense that we would, we would have that argument. Pursuing the common good, if you buy the way of Jesus, is pursuing a way of being together according to this way of Jesus, not according to which side on which issue you stand. And it, it makes me so angry that we identify ourselves in a different way than the way of Jesus, like which political side we're on. If that's our approach to faith, it's, it has to be nauseating to Jesus. It, it has to be repulsive to Him. It is to me. And I am angry when we think that our calling is something different than bringing restoration and healing to a broken world, pursuing the common good together. That's what we're after. That's what we're called to. That's, that's the frame in which I see the entire world. We should be able to do this together. Lee Camp again, quote, if Christianity in America is to serve the good of the world, then it must imagine different possibilities than we have been living. Imagine different possibilities than what we've been living. I'm going to give you a very simple, powerful image of imagining a different possibility based upon this political story that Jesus told in Luke based upon these questions that we're asking and based upon our definition of politics being the pursuit of the common good for everybody, these are the type of images we need to have. I don't know if you've seen that this week, but here it is on the screen. 
What this is, is in North London, uh, some people were passing by and they saw a man preparing to jump from a bridge. And, and they all got together and they kept him from jumping for two hours until emergency crews arrived on the scene. So if you look at that picture, you can see, you can see how tightly they're holding his head and, and his belt. They, somebody's got a hold of his belt. They've, they've put some rope or string around him. Mike Frost tweeted this and his quote was, what tenacious kindness. I'm gonna assume that in that picture, they all didn't agree on everything. I assume the people holding him there didn't all see eye to eye on everything, but yet they came together to keep this man alive. This is what happens when a community comes together and begins to think again about the common good. May that be the image that we give as a community to our community, to the city, and to this world. May that be the image that people see. Let's pray. Father, in the intersection of this story of the Good Samaritan, we get challenged all different ways. And in that intersection of, of our lives with this story, may we see our role, may we see our calling, May we see how we are to frame our identity as followers of Jesus. May we see how we are to frame our calling as people who are supposed to come alongside you to put the world back together. And anything, anything that gets in the way of that, may it be pushed to the side. We're all not going to agree. And we all may have a little anger brewing within us. But may it push us closer to the way of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Well, let us uh, take common meal together. Let us pause. Let us remember. Let us think about this Jesus who calls us to a better way of living. He calls us to a better way of life. He calls us to sacrifice as he sacrificed. And so together we will now take the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. We will take this bread, we will take this cup, and we will enter in. So when you're ready, whether it's during this next time of singing together, whether it's immediate, whether it's in a little bit, I ask you to pause, to remember, and allow the story of Jesus and the call and the framing of Jesus of your life, framing by Jesus of your life, to be what we remember during this time. If you have any questions about this teaching or are looking at different ways to engage in community at Crossings, you can reach out to us at administration at crossingsknoxville.com. If there's anything we can do to take care of you as you're listening from a distance, please let us know. Shalom. Shalom.